Hi everyone and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. This is live here from Cambridge. My name is Calvin. Every day we read four passages from the Bible. We're almost coming to the end of the year. So we are coming to the end of these four books that we'll be reading for over the next, how many days is it? Today's the 29th, 30th, 31st. Oh, last three days of the year. So um, yeah, that'll be exciting to see the conclusion to these four different books. Um, just wanted to point it out that today I had a new video come out. Uh, do check it out. It's a really short one minute video about the differences between churches uh, in the UK and in Malaysia where I'm from. Uh, just funny observations like how people make announcements back home in Malaysia about, you know, cars that are blocking the pastor's car or, you know, how people take notes, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, have a look. It, it's over there. Uh, thank you, actually to some of you, you might not realize this. Oh, sorry about the noise, I'm right next to my window, so this might pick up some traffic. Uh, but some of you, you might not know this, but it's your ideas, it's your contributions that made this video possible. Um, there's a little bit of you in these videos, so uh, do check it out. Um, but yeah, let's have a look at today's uh, four passages from the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan, Second uh, Chronicles 34, Revelation 20, Malachi chapter 2, and John chapter 19. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, help me to be um, faithful. Uh, please take away all the things that I say that might not be helpful or faithful, that might be wrong. Please forgive me when I uh, am coming to this, not as prepared as, as I could be. But help me to have a kind of honest and open faithfulness to the text that stays true to the big idea, that stays, stays true to the gospel. And please, for those who are listening, let this only be, uh, let them only hear that which is helpful and which is faithful to your word. I pray this uh, for Jesus' sake, for his glory alone. Um, amen. So let's go on to Second Chronicles chapter 35. Oh, Josiah. Okay, uh, this will be good. Okay. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did that which was right in Yahweh's eyes and walked in the ways of David his father and then would turn away to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, boy, I mean, he was eight years old when he began, so eight years of his reign, 16 years old, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places the Asherah poles, the molten images, and the molten Im engraved images and the molten images. Let me just do some math. So he was eight years old when he ascended to the throne, eight years uh, when he began seeking after God, so 16 years old. And when was this? In the 12th year, so four years after that, when he was 20 years old. Is that right? 12 years, 12 plus eight. Yeah. Okay. 12. Yeah. 20 years old. Uh, he began to purge all the high places, all the idolatry. Verse 4, They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that were on high above them. He broke the Asherah poles, the engraved images, and the molten images in pieces, made dust of them, and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. 
He did this in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, even to Naphtali, around in their ruins. He broke down the altars and beat the Asherah poles and the engraved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Judah, land of Israel, then returned to Jerusalem. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah and Maaseiah the governor of the city, and Joah the son of Joah has the recorder to repair the house of Yahweh his God. They came to Hilkiah the high priest and delivered the money that was brought into God's house, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had gathered from the hands of Manasseh, Ephraim, of all the remnant of Israel, of all Judah and Benjamin, and of all and of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They delivered it into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of Yahweh's house, and the workmen who labored in Yahweh's house gave it to mend and repair the house. They gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy cut stone and timber for couplings and to make beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. The men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jehath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam and of the sons of the Kohathites to give direction and others of the Levites who were all skillful with musical instruments. Also, they were over the bearers of burdens and directed all who did the work in every kind of service. Of the Levites, there were scribes, officials, and gatekeepers. When they brought out the money that was brought into Yahweh's house, Hilkiah the priest found the book of Yahweh's law given by Moses. Hilkiah answered Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in Yahweh's house. So Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. Shaphan carried the book to the king and moreover brought back word to the king, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in Yahweh's house and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and into the hand of the workmen. Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has delivered, delivered me a book. Shaphan read from it to the king. Now when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. The king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of Yahweh for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is Yahweh's wrath that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept Yahweh's word to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and they whom the king had commanded went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her to that effect. She said to them, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, Tell the man who sent you to me. Yahweh says, Behold, I will bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me 
and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath is poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, you shall tell him this. Yahweh, the God of Israel, says about the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and have wept before me, I also have heard you, says Yahweh. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes won't see all the evil that I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. They brought back word to the king. The king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to Yahweh's house with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in Yahweh's house. The king stood in his place and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. He caused all who were found in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand. The inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were found in Israel to serve, even to serve Yahweh their God. All his days they didn't depart from following Yahweh, the God of their fathers. So yeah, Josiah, this young king who at eight years old, eight years old, imagine that, uh, ascended to the throne, and then at 16, started really following God with all his heart. Um, you know, I, I know that this is not like the main point, but it is a very um, interesting, unusual one that it's just worth pointing out that he's so young. And um, I know that myself, I notice of myself uh, that as I get older, I get cynical of people who are younger, you know, who try to do stuff, who try to, you know, evangelize, who try to live out their faith in a, in a much more determined way. And I think, oh, you know, those guys, are, it's just youthfulness speaking. But stories like this, which is history, which is a real person, you know, shows just how profound the effect can be and how real faith can be, even amongst young people. And I wonder if actually um, that cynicism comes from my own sin, my own cynicism, uh, and not at all, nothing to do with actually the faithfulness of God to work through all ages and all people. Uh, and I say this simply because so many leaders are old. <laughs> um, you know, to be honest, you know, as you look around your churches, Chinese churches especially, you know, elders are elders. <laughs> They're old. Not only are they old, they, they stay in their position for a really, really long time. And what happens is that after a long time, it gets harder for them to pass on that mantle of leadership to those who are younger. Um, and it's funny because a lot of them became leaders when they were young. 
and and um, it's often a challenge for myself, at least, to think of who um, you know who I know who's younger than me, uh, who I know who um, is you know just starting out, you know, whom I can learn from first of all, but also I can pass on you know responsibility and opportunity too. I think that's really, really important. Again, it's not the main point, but I think it is a very, very important point simply because we don't see many young people in leadership and you know living out their faith in our churches. I think there should be more, and stories like this show that what a profound effect it can have. But the main thing, the main thing at least about this chapter is actually God's word. Now notice this, Josiah brings about these reforms at a very young age, and that's admirable. But what happens is he essentially tries to rebuild the temple. He takes out all the temple treasury and he pays all these workers to start rebuilding, you know, all the structure so that they can start um, having the sacrifices again. And this builds up to this big Passover event that we're going to see in the next few chapters. But almost like a reward, what happened there? Yeah, okay, I don't know. Almost as a reward, as they're digging through the temple, they find the Bible. They find probably it's just one book. It's probably just the book of Deuteronomy when he talks about the book of the law. But so strange it is to find this book that says something. It says that they've been kind of like going about all this worship, you know, all this, um, they've just been going without God's word for a really long time that when they read it, all of it seems new. And then they, and it suddenly clicks to Josiah that, hey, the reason why they've been experiencing what they've been experiencing in terms of God's judgment is because they've been ignoring and they've been breaking God's covenant. And so the rest of the chapter is Josiah essentially reading out, reading out the Bible, kind of like what we are doing here, reading out the Bible to his whole people and then renewing this promise, this covenant with God. And that's incredible. Um, and what it says is that it's almost like a reward. You know, Josiah rebuilds the structures, and as a reward, God almost gives him his word again. And you see, um, it, we don't often think like that. We think of God's word coming to us, and then, oh no, there's more, more to do. But no, they were obeying God, and as a reward, God spoke to them his word, enabled them to understand what it is that they were doing. And then there's the bit whereby God says, therefore, he will hold back, you know, the evil, the destruction that he will pour out upon, uh, upon the country, upon Jerusalem in particular. And this is talking about the exile that's going to happen in a few chapters time. But he won't do it during Josiah's time. You know, he'll honor him. He'll let him die before that happens. But again, what this shows is that uh, it explains what's going to happen. It doesn't prevent it, you know, um, and that's just reality. You know, God's judgment and God's wrath upon the sin of his people is real. And so that's going to come. But it does explain, it does give some insight, and this shows God's mercy in holding back that judgment for Josiah's sake. So yeah, so two things again, just the youth, you know, the faithfulness in this youthfulness that we see in Josiah, but also God's word that comes not just as an incentive, but almost as the end point of their faithfulness. You know, the fact that they have now God's word again, they're able to understand, able to renew this covenant, able to come to a new relationship with God because of his word with them. So yeah, so that's Second Chronicles chapter, chapter, chapter 34. 
Hello, hi, hello, see if anyone's watching. Yeah, no one, that's fine. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our next chapter, chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. Let's see what's going on here. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan who deceives the whole inhabited earth and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. After this, he must be freed for a short time. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and such as didn't worship the beast nor his image and didn't receive the mark on their forehead and on their hand. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him 1,000 years. Verse 7, And after the thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the war, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. They went up over the width of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Fire came down out of heaven from God and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and they opened books. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to his works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone who was found written, who is not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Um, yeah, okay. Wow. <laughs> By the way, the thousand years. So this bit in the beginning about this thousand years when Satan is bound with chains and then after that he's let go. This thousand years and then uh, where they were reign and after that, you know, there, there's this big battle. This thousand years is where we get the word for the millennium. That's what the thousand years mean. And that's where you get, you know, all these different theories about how the timelines fit in Revelation. You know, is the thousand years a literal thousand years or is it um you know um what's the word for it symbolic 
I guess, you know, um, or, or has it already passed? So, you know, different people have different positions on this, and that's where you get the different pre-mill and a-mill and post-millennium kind of theories. And if you want, you can Google them and find out more. I'm, I'm by no means an expert, so I don't know very much about this. It just seems that um, this is the precursor to that final battle. So the last bit, you know, everyone kind of kind of agrees there's going to be a last final battle where God will finally defeat all these forces of evil, including death, including Hades, including all who side with them, all those who worship the beast. And they are thrown into this um, lake of fire and sulfur, verse 10. You know, the beast, the false prophet, and here they are tormented day and night forever and ever and there there's and here we get this inkling of this foreverness of judgment that it isn't just a one-off thing but um there is going to be an ongoing torment and judgment and god's wrath upon uh his opposition yeah and uh, but again you know people defer in that I, i'm just i'm just making observations on this and again, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone who's not written the book of life is thrown into this lake of fire. Everyone's thrown in there. And then that's the, that's the end of the battle. And it's just that the millennium comes before this. And so some people say, you know, we are in the millennium. Some people say uh, it's going to come and then, you know, devil's going to be bound. And then we're going to have this yay, hooray, ho, happy time for a thousand years. And then he's going to come back even, even more, um, even more violently. Or some people say, you know, it's symbolic. It's a mill. You know, there's no actual thousand years, but then there is this symbolic symbolism whereby right now, you know, the, the devil is kind of like, you know, uh, coming back and he's he's bound, but um, he doesn't have all that full power, but he'll come back and he will, you know, cause havoc at the end of time. Yeah, but yeah, I won't say any more because I, I don't know very much. There are lots of pe people I know who are much better at this, um, but still it gives you the confidence that in the end God wins. It gives you the confidence even during that time when it looks as if, you know, things are not in control God has ordained this time, yeah, it, in in His wisdom, for this to happen in this way. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on uh, to the next one. Sorry, <laughs> Malachi chapter two. Now, you priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not listen, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says Yahweh of armies, then I will send the curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and I will spread dung on your faces, even the dung of your feasts. Yikes. And you will be taken away with it. You will know that I've sent this commandment to you that my covenant may be with Levi, says Yahweh of armies. My covenant was with him of life and peace and i gave them to him that he might be reverent toward me and he was reverent toward me and stood in awe of my name the law of truth was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found in his lips he walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many away from iniquity for the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of Yahweh of armies. But you have turned away from the path. 
You have caused many to stumble in the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of armies. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and wicked before all the people, according to the way you've not kept my ways, but you've had respect for persons in the law. Don't we all have one father? Hasn't one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh which he loves, and has married a daughter of a foreign god. Yahweh will cut off to the man who does this, him who wakes and him who answers out of the tents of Jacob, and him who offers an offering to Yahweh of armies. Ooh, sorry, there's a fly. Uh, <laughs> okay, right. Sorry, it's because of the lights. It's it's uh, it's attracting all these flies. Uh, okay, verse thirteen. This again you do. You cover Yahweh's altars with tears, with weeping, and with sighing, because he doesn't regard the offering anymore. Neither receives it with good will at your hand. Yet you say, why? Because Yahweh has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. Did he not make you one, although he had the residue of the Spirit? Why one? He sought godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. One who hates and divorces, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh of armies. Therefore, pay attention to your spirit that you don't be unfaithful. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in Yahweh's sight, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Um, here, God begins with the priests, the priests. And it's just a reminding, uh, worth reminding ourselves again that Malachi you know, comes uh, at the end of our English uh, Old Testament, English Bibles, you know, um, not the Jewish ones. The Jewish, the last book is Second Chronicles, which is what we were reading uh, before. But at least uh, in our Old Testament arrangement, Malachi comes at the end just before a 400 pause, uh, year pause uh, before Jesus comes. So like nothing happens between then. God's word, there is no like book of the Old Testament between that period and Jesus coming, at least in our arrangement of the Old Testament. And even before that, for Malachi at least, there's a gap between what happens here in Malachi and the return from the exile. So we mentioned this yesterday, the temple has already been built, you know, the priests have already been reinstituted. So it's kind of like a church that's been going on for a long time, but it's been kind of like in decline. You know, so people still go to church, but they kind of like do it half-heartedly. There are people serving in the church. There are all these priests whom God addresses here in chapter 2, but they kind of like don't take it seriously. And here God addresses them 
exclusively, you know, saying, you know, he's almost going to spread dung on their faces. Is that serious? You know, they're, they've kind of like profaned God's uh, service. They've profaned the ministry through their half-heartedness. And what are they meant to do at the heart of things? Uh, interestingly, uh, you would think that they are meant to offer up the sacrifices. But no, actually, at the heart of what they're meant to do, verse 6 and 7, is actually to speak God's word to God's people. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth. Unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked in peace and uprightness and turned people away from sin. 4, verse 7, the priest's lips should keep knowledge. They should seek the law. And he's the messenger of the Yahweh of armies. And therefore, it's all these half-heartedness, all these kind of like compromises in terms of worship, this, it's, it's symptomatic of them actually not taking seriously God's word. They're meant to be literally the mouthpiece of God. Or actually put it a different way, they're meant to teach God's word. And here is a kind of like, probably a kind of like, I, I suspect a lot of people who heard this the first time went, what were we supposed to do this? I thought I was just meant to put the bread there, you know, burn this and do that. And said, no, you're meant to actually teach God's word. You're meant to be the people who speak God's word to the masses. And because of this, verse eight, you've you've caused many to stumble in the law. You've corrupted the covenant. So because they themselves have not kept God's word, they've caused others to fall away from God's word. So that's the first thing we see. Um, God dealing specifically and exclusively with the priests who probably, you know, at this point of time, maybe reaching retirement, they've been doing the job day in, day out, and they, and they might even be really, really senior in that position and say, oh, no, I've done this for so long. You know, I came back during the exile. But God is saying, you have not taken your job seriously because you've not taken my word seriously. So that's the first thing. Secondly, he talks about their personal marriages. So this is a bit wider. Um, so here are then people who have been coming to church, but for some reason they say, why isn't God answering my prayers? You know, um, you, know you, you cover Yahweh's altars with tears, with weeping and sighing because he doesn't regard the offering anymore. It's as if, you know, they've, they've been coming to church for so long and they're so sincere and they cry with tears and they, they just offer themselves and, and God is saying, look at your marriages. You know, you know, you, you, I'm not listening to your prayers. Verse 14, I'm a witness between you and the wife of your youth, the wife of your covenant. So their unfaithfulness personally within their own marriages is symptomatic of their unfaithfulness to God. And that just goes to show how seriously God takes our personal relationships, our personal fidelity, our personal loves, as a kind of like a mirror to our love with God. There is a talk and there is a walk component. And it's it's just, it was probably again eye-opening because um, they probably honestly thought as long as they came to church, as long as they did, you know, all their part, you know, they were probably leaders even in their own churches. It will be okay, whatever else, you know, whether their jobs or with their own relationships, whether they, um, and here, you know, they, they, they essentially left their wives and could be, it could be that they were then marrying um, people of um, different religions, that kind of thing. But I think just more simply, they're just leaving, leaving their wives. And, and therefore, um, this bit about seeking godly offspring, God is saying, therefore, you've kind of like cut off 
that ability for you know faithfulness to flow down to your children. So yeah, so um, the thing to notice here in Malachi chapter two, the people reading this would have been surprised that God actually took their personal lives, their personal ministries seriously to heart. Yeah, and I think I think you know um, uh, again this is symptomatic again of people who have been doing the thing for a long time. You've been doing ministry for a long time. You're going, you're going to church for a long time and you, nothing has changed. And you're kind of like slipping, 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 sleeping. Sl- sorry, not sleeping, but slipping. You know, you, you've just not taken, things have just gotten mundane and boring. And suddenly God wakes, wakes you up and go, hey, you know, what are you doing? And then you just say, but I've just been doing my job. And really, it's just a job to you. You don't take it seriously. You've lost that spark. You've lost that joy. And God is saying, hey, you're not just doing a job. You're serving me and your walk, your personal uh, commitment to this, your personal devotion to this counts in, counts before me. Yeah. So Malachi chapter 2. Let's see. Let's carry on uh, to our last passage, John chapter 19. Is this, oh, this is a long one. Okay, so here we go. John chapter 19. So Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted thorns into a crown and put it on his head and dressed him in purple garment. They kept saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they kept slapping him. Uh, Let me, I just pause here. Um, It's mock worship. You know, if you wanted to torture a person, you know, you could do all kinds of things. But this is a kind of torture that mocks him. You know, that's why they put on the crown, they put in a purple garment. They, they're saying, oh, you think you're a king? And then they punch him. Yeah. But the thing is, he is a king. Verse 4. Then Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I bring him out to you that you may know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple garment. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they shouted, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When therefore Pilate heard this saying, he was more afraid. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Aren't you speaking to me? Don't you know that I have power to release you and have power to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power at all against me unless it were given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has greater sin. At this, Pilate was seeking to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you aren't Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabata. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover at about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, 
Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. He went out, bearing his cross, to a place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him two others on either side, one and Jesus in the middle. Pilate wrote a title also and put it on the cross. There was written Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews therefore said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also the coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Then they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it will be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They parted my garments among them, for my cloak they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Therefore when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, seeing that all things were now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Now a vessel full of vinegar was set there, so they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop and held it at his mouth. When Jesus therefore had finished the vinegar, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Therefore the Jews, because it was the preparation day, so that the bodies wouldn't remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special one, asked the Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Therefore the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. However, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, that you may believe. For these things happen that the scripture might be fulfilled, a bone of him will not be broken. Again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly out of for fear of the Jews, asked of Pilate that he might take away Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus at night, by night also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred Roman pounds. So they took Jesus' body 
and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. <coughs> Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden was a new tomb in which no man had ever been laid. Then, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was near at hand, they laid Jesus there. I want you to notice that every single thing that's written here is for our benefit, for your benefit, so that you can see how they kind of like line up. You know, it keeps saying, "This happened, so that Scripture will be fulfilled." This happened. So that scripture would be fulfilled, and it's meant for us to go, hey, God promised, God is in control. God said this would happen, and every bit about Jesus being crucified, his clothes being gambled, you know, him giving, being given the wine vinegar, none of this an accident, but all of it shows that God is in control. Why? So that you can know that what is written here is true. Let me just pick the very last one that says this. Again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they pierce. Now we looked at this a couple of days ago, Zechariah chapter twelve, verse ten. This is where God says, "I will say, says says to the sword, arise, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced." Talking about himself, they look at God, and they shall mourn for him. And John applies this to Jesus. Number one, as God, they'll look on God whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him. You know, all his mom and his, and his hand and the people around him. But also later on in Revelation, those who, you know, who you know don't repent. You know, those those who finally realize, hey, you know, Jesus actually is coming back. So a different kind of mourning we see there in Revelation chapter one. But again, fulfillment after fulfillment, not just so that it's interesting. Oh wow, there's a connection here and there. But what are you going to do about this? Are you going to trust this? And interestingly, what follows right after that, verse thirty-eight on- onwards, are these people who do trust it, who they they almost have a change of heart, and therefore they start professing their faith in Christ in a very profound way.、Um, and I got this from a message I heard at.、Um, St Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Kuala Lumpur, very very good church.、Uh, do check them out. Their live streams are just so encouraging. I looked,、uh, I I was watching this one. I think for Christmas Day,、uh, where the pastor was talking about Joseph of Arimathea coming to Pilate and asking to take away Jesus's body, and saying just one of the remarkable thing for him to do this. Now here was a very public person personality. Coming to Pilate, who just killed Jesus, asking for. Oops! Oh, got it. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, got it. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah.、Um, asking for his body. It, the equivalent would be like going up to the president of the United States and asking for the body of Osama bin Laden. That was the illustration he used. That was so powerful. I mean, that's just the kind of magnitude of this person's. Boldness to ask for Jesus's body, because Jesus was an was convicted as an insurrectionist, as a terrorist, and here he was aligning himself with Jesus, giving him his tomb, taking his body. Same as well for Nicodemus. These were two very, very public people who publicly confessed their faith and their allegiance with Jesus upon his death on the cross, and it's again. It's no accident. This comes right after all these fulfillment. This happened. This happened. This happened. It's almost saying to you, "Hey, what about you? 
you know, who do you think you are that you, you think, you know, um, that I, I, oh, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't right now trust in Jesus. No, these guys did at great cost and at great risk simply because it's true. And that's the only thing you need to think about. Is this really true? Did Jesus really die as God had sent him to die? And therefore, if all this is true according to God's plan, he is the king and therefore he died for my sins. That's all I would say. Actually, I want to say so many other things. It's it's so interesting, you know, like um, the two things that I've always been puzzling about is the two statements that Pilate makes before uh, before this mob. He says two things. He says, behold the man, and he says, behold your king. And I've always puzzled about the behold the man here. Verse 5, you know, he brings Jesus out and covered in blood, but also covered in wearing the crown of thorns and purple government he says behold this human being and you see this broken man you're meant to see i think it's meant to show the picture of humanity but also the height of jesus's humanity that here this is what he came to to be when he says that jesus took on human flesh isn't just that he then had you know two arms and a head and that kind of thing no he came to take on all the weakness and all the brokenness and all the and to be crushed as a man. So he said, this he said, this is what Jesus came to be, this broken person. So that's one thing. And then he said, kill him, kill him, kill him. And the other thing is, um, I don't know where it says, uh, behold, behold your king, verse fourteen. And he say, crucify, crucify him. And I think uh, again this reinforces Jesus' kingship because all throughout the Old Testament you see the way in which we know that God is God is because the people keep rejecting him. So it's funny because the way in which you know that God is God is not that they love him, they accept him, they bow down before him. But no, the person you hate most in your whole life with all your heart, the Bible is saying, that's God. And therefore, if you meet such a person, that's how you know he's God. It's such a strange way to convince people that Jesus really is God. But it is through their hatred. Verse 15, away with him, away with him. And you went to go, oh, okay, so therefore, that's how I know Jesus is God. If they had said, oh, we love him, oh, we want him to be our king, we want him, that's when you go, hey, this guy's fake. But, you know, Jesus' identity as a man and as a king is confirmed through his weakness and through his rejection. Think about it. That, that's really, I think that's just so interesting and so eye-opening the way that the gospel presents the validity of his claims through his weakness, through his rejection. And finally, through through then, you know, through the fulfillment of scripture and therefore our response, that, that tough, that open, faithful response that will cost us something, but it's simply a response to the truthfulness and the fullness of the revelation that is in scripture that Jesus really is who he is. Okay, all right, so that's that's today's four passages. Let me stop here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for... Uh, move this away. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus really is who he is. Uh, and thank you that you keep reassuring us through the Bible to be able to see him as, you know, as the king, you know, the one who is exalted even though everyone rejects him, as truly truly human the one who humbles himself before you before your will and therefore it shows us what we ought to do in response to humble ourselves before him to love him to come before him at the cross 
Help us to do this each time as we hear your word. Help us to do this in in the wholeness of our hearts, that we might walk the talk, that we might not you know fall away and lose that joy that is in Jesus, but we might grow, that we might want to do this more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Bye.